This month on Focus Black Oklahoma, we learn about the Tulsa Fortune 500 company that has been financing politicians who claim that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. We review what the most recent electoral outcomes mean for state and national offices. Understand how the Cherokee History Museum in Tahlequah explores the history of the freedmen, the people formerly enslaved by the indigenous nation. How restoring the Okmulgee Black Hospital is a labor of love for one local man. We get to know Jalen Dorsey, a.k.a. DJ Lightbright from Weatherford, and his thriving music and entrepreneurial endeavors. Hear how high school memories can be bittersweet when FBO's executive producer describes the experience of attending his 40th high school reunion. The holidays are always a festive time of year until Grandma has slipped a special treat and decides to gift the family with her real feelings. All this and more on Focus Black Oklahoma. Focus Black Oklahoma, sponsored by Phillips Theological Seminary, offering daily Advent devotionals throughout the holiday season. Online at wherefaithleads.com slash devotionals. This is Focus Black Oklahoma. I'm Jacob Littlebear. And I'm Kuma Roberts. As many find themselves learning to navigate in a post-truth era, there's at least one statement you can always trust. Money talks. One Tulsa Fortune 500 company has been using its money to support campaigns of politicians who proclaim without evidence that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. Nick Alexandrov has the story. You know, at its at its most fundamental level, it basically it means January 6th is every day now. Robert McGuire is the research director for Crew, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. For him, January 6th showed how gripped certain sectors of our political system are by this the this lie the big lie the big lie the big lie big lie big lie that Donald Trump was the true winner of 2020's presidential race there's no evidence for that claim but in the 2022 midterms scores of big lie proponents came to power the new york times counts nearly 200 all republicans huffpost tallies 19 in the senate and 154 in the house here's one of them there were election irregularities and unconstitutional overreach of unelected bureaucrats who were rewriting election law in certain states. Elise Stefanik represents New York's 21st congressional district. She won her fifth term on November 8th, beating her challenger by 50,000 votes. We delivered, you delivered another landslide victory. And with $10,000 in campaign funds from a Tulsa business. Infrastructure, performance, reliability, integrity, heart. They all work hand in hand to drive the pipeline of progress. The question is not what makes energy happen. It's who makes energy happen. The answer is Williams. Williams is a company that handles 30% of the nation's natural gas. According to its president and CEO, Alan S. Armstrong, headquartered in downtown Tulsa's BOK Tower, Williams, which never responded to our interview request, is number seven on the Oklahomans' list of the state's top businesses and ranked 347th on this year's Fortune 500. Like many companies, Williams has a Political Action Committee, or PAC. This entity raises money for scores of political candidates countrywide, like North Carolina Congressman Richard Hudson. That every legal vote was counted, that the process was fair and, and, and transparent and legal. Uh, we, don't, we don't have that certainty right now. He's gotten $7,500 from the Williams PAC since January 2021. In the same time frame, Williams donated $2,500 to Congressman Mike Bost. Mike fights every day 
for the hardworking people of Illinois, and I know it probably better than anyone. Representative Bost, like Representatives Hudson and Stefanik, voted to overturn the 2020 election results. They're just three among dozens of election deniers supported by the Williams PAC. So Williams, they donated about $316,000 to 50 members of Congress. 48 of whom won on November 8th. Who objected to certifying the 2020 presidential election results. And that made up about 32% of the company's total giving during this last cycle. That's Sergio Hernandez. I'm a news apps developer at ProPublica. He built an app focused on big corporations, specifically those funding the 147 members of Congress who voted to invalidate Joe Biden's presidential victory. So we looked at all of the Fortune 500 companies and found that about 230, I think it's about 228, had provided some kind of financial support to those members of Congress, those 147 members of Congress. And that altogether, they put in about $13 million into those candidates' campaign committees during the last cycle. Of those 228 major firms, the Williams PAC ranks seventh in terms of total giving. It gets much of its money from top executives, including its CEO. We always try to do the right thing. We have a culture of doing that. Alan Armstrong has led Williams since 2011. In the past two years, he's given $10,000 to his company's PAC. Debbie Cowan is the firm's senior vice president and chief human resources officer. Ethical and moral considerations are in front and center in our world today, and they need to be in front and center of also making our business decisions and our operations. She gave $9,500 to the Williams PAC. Other top contributions, the nearly $10,000 from Michael G. Dunn, executive vice president and chief operating officer, and $9,600 from Chad J. Zamarin, senior vice president of corporate strategic development. Then there's the board of directors, a cohort of current and former top executives at leading oil, gas, and mining companies. 11 of its 12 members donated to the tune of $76,000. There really is no other reason for a corporation to give political contributions aside from the fact that they need access to powerful lawmakers in order to be able to influence them. And the way to do that is to give money. That's Citizens for Ethics' Robert McGuire again. Research supports his explanation. A 2020 article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, for example, concluded, based on nearly three decades of data, that oil and gas companies invest in legislators that vote against the environment. And the Williams-backed candidates share more than a false belief in election fraud. They all earned failing grades in the current cycle from the League of Conservation Voters, which gauges legislators' support for environmental laws. They are giving because it it is in their best interest to do so because members of Congress hold sway over the laws and regulations that impact their business on a daily basis. And so we saw this as an opportunity to basically put that in a harsh relief. To show that, for many firms, crowding the House with anti-democracy candidates is a bearable cost, even if that- Means January 6th is every day now. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Nick Alexandrov in Tulsa. Let's go. For 2022 midterm elections, statewide attention was focused on what the electoral outcomes would mean for issues like indigenous sovereignty and education. Jamie Glisson reviews this year's results for state and national offices. On November 8th, Oklahomans took to the polls to vote in the 2022 midterm elections. Governor Kevin Stitt was re-elected, as well as State Superintendent Ryan Walters. Their opponents, Joy Hoffmeister and Gina Nelson, picked up a strong following statewide and caught the attention of national media. During the final weeks of campaigning, the Republican Governors Association made a seven-figure ad buy to help stit over the finish line. Prominent Republicans like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Senator Ted Cruz of Texas also rushed to his side to prevent a major midterm upset. In the end, their efforts were successful. At the Oklahoma History Center in Oklahoma City, Joy Hoffmeister was introduced by Deputy Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation, Brian Warner, 
In his opening remarks, Deputy Chief Warner said that Joy, quote, ran her campaign on heart, end quote, and worked hard to earn the respect of all Oklahomans. While she has earned the respect of tribal leaders and citizens across the state, she has earned the respect of hundreds and thousands of Oklahomans from every walk of life. And she is a unifier and a friend to all, who has been a steady advocate for the workers and working families all across the state. She has been a champion for rights of Oklahoma women. My friends, fellow Oklahomans, the results tonight are not what we wanted. We would have never gotten this far if it were not for the person Joy is and what she stands for as an individual. We owe her an unending debt of gratitude for being a champion for the ideals that we all hold so near and dear to our hearts. We're all so glad that she ran this race. She raised the voices of all Oklahomans and the awareness of the issues that are critical today and every day in our state. We can only hope that Governor Stitt has listened to the hundreds of thousands of Oklahomans who want to see this state get back on the right track. Hoffmeister reminded Oklahomans that their voices are, quote, necessary and important, end quote, and that her advocacy in putting people over party will continue. I'll also continue advocating for the 39 tribal nations who call our state home. As this political season fades, it is my hope that the division with tribal governments will fade away. I'm so grateful for the trust and friendships I've built with tribal members and citizens across our state. And I'm so sorry that this is not the outcome we wanted. This campaign has always been about more than partisan politics. It was about homeowners. It was about hometowns, about standing up for what is right. It was about putting Team Oklahoma first. The Associated Press called both United States senator races in favor of the Republican candidates, incumbent Senator James Langford and the former congressman of Oklahoma's 2nd District, Mark Wayne Mullen. Langford and Mullen both earned over 60 percent of the vote. Kendra Horn and Madison Horn learned of their defeat within five minutes of the polls closing. Supporters took to social media looking for clarification on how the call could be made so fast, while non-supporters praised the defeat of the, quote, female demon rats, end quote, and thanked former President Donald Trump for the win. Republicans won in a landslide across all congressional districts. Here is incumbent and winner of Oklahoma's third district, Frank Lucas, celebrating his 16th term as a congressman. It's wonderful when the voters respond to your efforts for the last two years. Clearly tonight's victory is a statement about continuing our mission. Uh, whether it's balancing the budget, making sure working-class Oklahomans have a better chance to survive and prosper. The key is, tonight, the voters responded to our efforts. It's forward together, and it looks like uh, it's going to be a national sweep. Life will be better as a chairman. Frank Lucas came out on top, earning the vote of almost 75% of his district, while incumbent Stephanie Bice of Oklahoma's 5th District garnered the lowest percentage amongst her colleagues at just under 60%. Her fiercest opponent, Joshua Harris Till, earned the votes of nearly 40% of CD5. It has been said that his campaign ran on the audacity of hope. With Governor Stitt accepting his re-election on the screens behind him, Harris Till spent most of his time on stage addressing the hard work of his staff and army of volunteers. We laugh, we joke, we have a good time, but so many of the people who are on this stage did so much work in order for us to be here. This doesn't just happen. People have to be invested, dedicated, and really give 110%. Thank you on behalf of Oklahoma, because Oklahoma doesn't always get it right, but you all get it right. You all are what is right with this state. You all, if you are willing to, will get us every single thing that we need to get in this state. You'll get us the wins, you'll get us the representation, you'll get good laws passed, you'll get a balanced county budget, you'll get a jail that doesn't kill people all the time. <laughs> this right here, this is how it starts. This is, this is the beginning. According to Oklahoma State Election Board officials, only 50% of eligible voters actually voted this November, meaning just over 1.1 million voters determined the elected officials for everyone. In the last midterm election, 
more than 56% of the state's registered voters turned out. And that translates to at least 34,000 fewer people voting in 2022 than in 2018. In the end, the Oklahoma state legislature holds a trifecta status, meaning a single party controls the governor's office, state senate, and state house. The state senate now has eight Democrats and 40 Republicans, and the state house has 20 Democrats and 81 Republicans. Republicans also control all of the seats for the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House. Our Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, Auditor Inspector, Corporation Insurance and Labor Commissioners, Treasurer, and the Superintendent of Public Instruction are also led by Republicans. At the age of 34, newly elected Democratic Representative of House District 71, Amanda Swope, unexpectedly won every precinct in her district. A descendant of the Osage Nation and a citizen of the Muscogee Nation, Swope has big plans to bring civility back to the Capitol. Hi, this is Amanda Swope, newly elected representative for House District 71. I just want to take a minute to thank everyone that supported me throughout my campaign. I truly couldn't have done it without your help and encouragement. I'm excited to bring your voice to the Capitol and to work to build a government that works for you again. A couple days following the election, the Oklahoma Center for Community and Justice held their annual awards dinner, honoring Superintendent Dr. Deborah Gist of Tulsa Public Schools and Dr. Kurt Hartzler, Superintendent of Union Public Schools. In both his opening and closing remarks, Ken Busby, the executive director and CEO of the Route 66 Alliance, discussed the history of our state and questioned the decisions of our elected officials. Original peoples and reservations and enslaved and the formerly enslaved persons and white settlements and Jim Crow and energy and land used and misused and both using religion both for good purposes and for social control. Why do we fear talking about our whole history? To the extent that we'll punish those who do. When a smiling Dr. Gist took the stage, she started her address with, quote, wow, I don't know about you, but I really need it tonight. Who else really needed tonight? End quote. And went into praising the educators and supporters of Tulsa Public Schools. Tulsa Public Schools has been nationally recognized as being a leader in culturally affirming curriculum, including our work and educating our community and our country about Black Wall Street and about the Tulsa Race Massacre, as well as the important recognition of community courage and resilience. On the note of resilience, I want to pause. One of our responsibilities is to make sure that folks don't have to be so damn resilient. Church, including our pastor David Emery, all of our friends from Harvard Avenue. I'm so grateful. These are people I've grown up with, people who are part of the fabric, the fiber of who I am, in my cells. And with their love and support, I have grown to deeply believe that it's my purpose and my duty to dismantle practices, cultures, and systems that perpetuate inequities and to work toward justice and opportunity for all. I've learned so much over the years and I have made many mistakes, big ones and small ones. And every time I've tried to learn lessons and to forge ahead with an open mind and a loving heart. 
For many of us, this was a hard week. But here is what I want you to know. At Tulsa Public Schools, we are resolute in our commitment to every child. Yes. We are a school district that loves, supports, and educates, and celebrates Tulsa's children and you for who you are without exception. With tear-filled eyes and a standing ovation, Dr. Deborah Gist greeted her esteemed colleague, Dr. Kurt Hartzler. Dr. Hartzler echoed the words of those that came before him and reinforced his belief in the public schools of Oklahoma, as well as our need to find common ground. These are indeed challenging times for us all as we recover from a worldwide pandemic and navigate through contentious political times. Like you, I have never seen a time such as this. It seems like we are living through a never-ending political storm. The American author, Willa Cather, offers up some inspiration, however, with her words. There are some things you learn best in calm and some in a storm. We are continuing to learn a lot during this storm, and primarily it is that our public schools have an ethical obligation to lead the way into the future. We are the ones who will have to continue to find solutions to paradoxical issues. At a time when one in four children live in poverty and two in three qualify for free and reduced lunch in our state, we must continue to create a sanctuary where threats of hunger, harm, and disenfranchisement do not exist. side just how large a role we play in shaping lives and society and how our work as community members fits together. Richard Florida in his book The Rise of the Creative Class argues that our cities are not just economic en engines. They are key to our health and well-being. But vital to this economic viability and quality of life is valuing and supporting our public schools. We must ensure that each and every student be given an opportunity to educationally succeed. It means also that we must strive to accept all students, all families, all staff and others for who they are rather than what they are. If all students are not uniquely or they were not uniquely different in their own needs and strengths, then the process of ensuring this education would, be not, would not be so complex. But as we know, each student is a uniquely beautiful individual. Despite our challenges, our public schools are still a common good and a right and a rightful thing. Public schools are indeed the lifeblood of a democracy, our democracy. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Jamie Glisson in Oklahoma City. You're listening to Focus, Black Oklahoma. A new exhibit at the Cherokee History Museum in Tahlequah explores the history of the freedmen, the people formerly enslaved by the indigenous nation. FBO's Allison Herrera visited the museum with some of their descendants. Some of your relatives are here in this exhibit, right? On the wall, yes. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Who are they? My great-grandfather's relatives. His kids and his kids' kids are actually on the wall. Willie Scott and his son Brian drove all the way from San Antonio, Texas to see their family represented in the new exhibit called We Are Cherokee, Freedmen and the Right to Citizenship. Yeah, that's my great-grandfather and great-grandmother right here on top, Kate, Reverend Jack and uh, Katie Brown. These photos of Reverend Jackson and other freedmen tell part of the story about the enslavement of people by members of the Cherokee Nation and their fight for justice and citizenship after emancipation. And the story continues. Just last year, tribal officials announced they were removing the blood requirement for citizenship from their constitution in an effort to be more inclusive of the descendants of former slaves. Though many freedmen married native Cherokees and lived in the nation, Court battles around their role in the tribe lasted for decades. So the moment Willie and his son Brian saw their relatives represented here. It was a kind of a validation, so to speak, of, you know, uh, of the tie that 
bound us to our ancestors and in particular, like I knew my grandmother, his mom as well, and she's on the wall. The exhibit is made up of stories, photos, documents, and artwork specifically made by Cherokee citizens for the show. Earlier this year, a call went out to citizens asking them to submit their stories. And Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. hired a liaison to work with the Friedman community. OCO, everyone. Melissa Payne is that liaison. It's something she was hesitant to do at first. Her late mother, Rosalind Brown, fought for years around issues affecting Friedman, a cause Melissa later took over. Now she's talking about this exhibit and her ancestors' place in Cherokee history, including her mom's role as a culture bearer. Her award-winning baskets are in this exhibit, but she says this public display is just a start. Not just for the Freedmen, but for all of us. Just more, more understanding, more coming together, and more working together, because as we lift each other, we lift ourselves. So we grow strong as a nation, and I think it'll never stop because we can continue to grow and learn, and as long as I have breath, I will continue to do so. And things continue to change. In 2017, Cherokee Friedman won the right to citizenship after a decades-long court battle. One of the lead plaintiffs on that case was Marilyn Van. She's part of the Tribal Nation's Environmental Commission, one of the first Freedmen to hold this position. In 2020, Cherokee Nation removed a Confederate monument from the grounds of their historic courthouse, and by removing the blood requirement from their constitution, Freedmen are no longer barred from running for other tribal offices. Willie and Brian recently became Cherokee citizens, and seeing this exhibit is just the latest sign of how far the tribal nation has come. It makes me want to learn more and more about um, the, the Trail of Tears and what really happened uh, to the uh, Cherokee Nation. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to start getting more um, educated. There are currently almost 12,000 Cherokee freedmen enrolled in the tribal nation. But for Willie and Brian, citizenship isn't just a card for them. It's validation of their family and their ancestors as Cherokees. For Focus Back Oklahoma, I'm Allison Arara. Because of Black history and a personal commitment to preserving landmarks that are tied to Black people, Lehman Lewis bought and is restoring the Okmulgee Black Hospital as a labor of love for his community. Jasmine Bivartobi shares the story of Lewis's ongoing pledge to ensure it is a landmark for all generations. Lehman Lewis has spent his entire life in Okmulgee. For 39 years, he worked in auto repair at the Harlan Motor Company, 20 of those years being the service manager. Outside of work, he's pastored a Baptist church for over 30 years and served on various leadership boards in the community. These elements of his life are only an example of Lehman's dedication to the development and perseverance of Okmulgee. In 2015, Lehman's commitment to the Black historical representation of Okmulgee went to the next level when he purchased the only Black hospital in Oklahoma left standing and simultaneously founded Landmark for All Generations, a 501c3 organization. The Okmulgee Black Hospital, created in 1922, was established to serve the needs of African Americans during racial segregation in the 20th century. The construction was funded in part by Black citizens and was operated by a completely Black medical staff. During this era, Black medical practitioners were not licensed to operate in white, non-integrated facilities. The hospital, which opened in 1924, was seen as a beacon of light and opportunity for equality amongst the racial tensions of the times, in particular after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Lewis describes his connection to the hospital. And I'm old enough that to have been able to come in the hospital when it was, you know, a hospital. Uh, I had an uncle that was a patient in here. And so I visited him here. Uh, I said that it, it closed because the city would not keep it updated so the doctors would have 
you know, the right equipment for the time. But when you when you look at how, you know, had they not had the vision to do this during the time period, we're talking the time period, during that time period, then people of color had nowhere to go to to get their medical treatment. And whatever white doctors worked on them or, you know, used as patients was in jeopardy because that was a thing that they weren't supposed to do. So they they couldn't do it in the open, you know, like everything else, because if they did, they would um, be outcast or what have Lehman and his local volunteer team aspire to rebuild the hospital to its glory by establishing a black hospital museum, multicultural co-working space, and continuing medical care. The renovation of the more than 100-year-old hospital has been scheduled in phases due to the funding needs of this massive project. Phase one, the roof construction, was fully funded by a local aircraft company, Covington Craft Complete, in 2019. The next year, phase two was kicked off with a challenge created by Lehman's former employer and local philanthropist, Fred Harlan. The challenge encourages groups to pull together $2,100 for each window or door to be replaced. This challenge is still ongoing and open for donations through the website landmarkforallgenerations.com. Phases three through seven are plumbing, heating, electrical, and other internal construction work. The final two phases are the restoration of structures and formation of the museum. Due to the funding of all phases being largely supported by grants written by volunteers, there is no estimated timeline of completion for this project. According to Julie Roberts, a volunteer grant writer for Landmark for All Generations, the museum is expected to be a great tourist attraction due to its location on Highway 75. The hospital sits right yeah. on a perfect, busy highway where it's going to draw tourism into this community yeah. when we can get it yeah. open to tell the story of the hospital, to promote the history of Black Oklahoma, Black Oklahoma, yeah. just to tell all those stories that are out there. I mean, yeah. you know, we've been also interviewing people who were born here, who worked here, who were in the hospital here. We've got to get their stories before they're gone. Yeah. Well, and, and the reason he named this Landmark for All Generations, it's not just for the black community, it's for anybody who wants to know the history of this town, of this state, of the plight of the African Americans and what they went through. Because, like me now, I'm like embarrassed and ashamed, you know, that this happened, you know. But it needs, it's a story that needs to be told and it needs to be for everyone to hear, you know, not just for the black community to come to. It's an Omagi story, yes, but it's representative of the nation, you know. So I think that people will come from everywhere. Lehman and his team are looking for volunteers and donations to help continue the work of restoring this historical landmark. For information on how to donate time or resources, please reach out through the website, landmarkforallgenerations.com. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Jasmine Bivar Toby in Okmogi. Despite humble beginnings in rural Oklahoma, Jalen Dorsey has built a stellar music career and a booming new business venture that proves it's not where you came from, it's about where you want to go. Shonda Little has details on the life of Jalen, aka DJ Lightbright, and his thriving music and entrepreneurial endeavors. Jalen Dorsey would stand out in Weatherford, Oklahoma, even if he wasn't setting the DJ stage afire. Located in Custer County, Oklahoma, Weatherford boasts a little over 10,000 people. Dorsey, better known as DJ Lightbright, both in rural Oklahoma and electronic dance and hip-hop music scenes from Weatherford to Los Angeles, is six foot eight. He wears natural dreads, and his smile is as big as his body. In Weatherford, he is hard to miss. Now with a successful bi-coastal DJing career, which includes opening for hip-hop greats like Snoop Dogg and Ice Cube, Dorsey says that rural Oklahoma was the unlikely launching pad for his high-flying career. 
I landed in Weatherford in 2011 on a basketball scholarship and through a lot of college events, a lot of experience with music and figuring out that I really could serve a purpose to my community in a different way, I landed as a performing DJ. Although Dorsey had been a hobby DJ as a teenager, he stumbled upon new opportunities while attending Southwestern Oklahoma State University in Weatherford. After scoring several paying gigs, he was hired to DJ the Buck and Wild Music Fest in Eric, Oklahoma in 2014. The Red Dirt and Country Music Festival featured top country acts like Love and Theft. That year, that group won the Country Music Awards Duo of the Year. The festival made Dorsey realize the potential that he had in this new path. While his parents questioned this choice, he knew that he was all in as DJ Lightbright. So I had to make a decision, and ultimately I chose my DJ career. The move has paid off for Dorsey and his family in ways that he couldn't have predicted. He is open for musical and hip-hop acts that his parents only dreamed of seeing. He DJs for multiple sports teams, including the Swasu Bulldogs and the Oklahoma City Thunder. His career path has even given him a chance to create a product that he is proud of. This year, I had a super awesome opportunity to create a beverage that is infused with both CBD and with THC. So one of the beverage is just called Cruise, and it is a pineapple vanilla infusion with CBD in a 12-ounce can with 25 milligrams of the cannabinoid. Then the other product is called Fuel. It is a pineapple guava infusion infused with 25 milligrams of THC. And it is both an incredible drink and an incredible product for our patients. Dorsey's success is not a surprise to many. My name is Josh Collins, and I am the head volleyball coach and director of game day operations at Southwestern Oklahoma State University. Jalen is the DJ for all of our home matches inside of the Pioneer Cellular Event Center. He comes out to a rural area in Oklahoma and creates this incredible artistic, you know, multicultural business where he is thriving. And it's just amazing to watch him create something. Still, Dorsey acknowledges that being a black artist in rural Oklahoma has come with a learning curve. During his time in Weatherford, he witnessed the re-election of the first black president, Barack Obama, and the swing in the opposite direction with President Trump. I was able to see how a rural community or rural communities responded to black people in positions of power, to police brutality, to myself as a black entertainer stepping into the spaces that are white, that are not black, that are not typically favorable to minorities. All of those things fed into the experience that has molded me into the human that I am today. It's an experience that hasn't disconnected me from my Blackness. I would even say that it's made me even more connected to my Blackness. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, this is Shonda Little from Weatherford. High school. Years many of us simply want to forget. Yet no matter how old you get or how many years have passed, there's always a reunion that brings all those feelings flooding back. FBO's executive producer, Koresh Ali Lansana, shares his anxieties about attending his 40th high school reunion. Today is a good day. Captions my cousin's smiling, do-ragged face on social media, and I believe him. I truly believe he feels that joy in Enid, Oklahoma, though unsure if a byproduct of resilience, faith, or defining one's truth solely on the limited geography of one's understanding. I love my cousin and all my relatives that remain in our hometown, so this is not an insult. This is an attempt to come to grips with my 40th high school reunion just days away when I saw his post. It had been a while since I'd experienced such debilitating trepidation. My anxiety wasn't rooted in the fact that four decades had passed since I was a somewhat lost, yet popular, chubby, preppy black kid who was student council vice president and listened to ska, reggae, and punk in a Journey and Luther Vandross world, suggesting to the handful of fellow black students that I was an Oreo and Uncle Tom. And though this stung in 1982, 
it was not what was vexing about this gathering. The reunion was to take place at the country club, a spot I'd only been inside twice prior for a graduation event in 1982 and the 10-year reunion. I never felt comfortable there as no black or brown folks were allowed to become members during my childhood. It's unlikely to have changed, though my attempts to confirm were unsuccessful. Was this the source of my unease? To be fair, I had little to no idea how many of my classmates paid any attention to my career. Other than my crew of 10 or so homies, I didn't know what folks were up to, so I had no expectations. Yes, I am likely Enid's most noted author and among its most nationally recognized Native sons, but the library in which my best friend Russ and I dreamed every weekend for years holds only one of my 22 books. And that title is a children's book about growing up in a segregated Enid with Russ, though I had to change the book's location for the story to make sense. Though hundreds of classmates are no longer Enidites, there's a distinct possibility that half of the class of 1982 hasn't read a book of any kind since graduation. Enid remains extremely conservative and deeply segregated, and I am neither. The most nationally recognized member of our graduating class is a former NBA four-time All-Star, which, as a sports ball fan, is very cool. We were in vastly different friend groups in high school and were barely acquaintances. There were nearly 500 students in our class and about 25 of us were black. Since I was not an athlete, an Oak Ridge Boys fan, or a fundamentalist Christian, we had little interaction. But at a sad, poorly attended graduation party thrown by a mutual friend, I decided to address our boredom by inviting him to play horse. He would soon be off to play big-time college ball at an Atlantic Coast Conference school, and I, in a few months, would shuffle an hour and a half south to study journalism at OU. Nursing my second 3.2 beer, I beat him. I beat a dude who would soon join the NBA's 50-40-90 club for those who shot at least 40% from three-point range, at least 50% from the field, and at least 90% from the free throw line in a single season. And he is still one of only eight players to have ever done this. Of course, he will never remember this game of horse, but I will never forget. I want to tell him about this early highlight of my already short-lived hoops career at the reunion. I want to ask him about playing against Michael Jordan, whose Bulls championship era I lived through in its entirety as a citizen of the Windy City for 28 years. I want to know what it was like to play with Brad Doherty, one of my other favorite North Carolina college players who reintegrated NASCAR after a long period of whiteness and well before Bubba Wallace. But I don't. When our paths crossed, he said, hey, and I replied, hey, and kept it moving. We weren't chummy 40 years ago, so what would make me think the decades would bring us closer? We ran into each other again after my Emmy Award was announced. I was outside avoiding him and his crew singing Elvira when this occurred and nothing in my being felt compelled to speak. This moment, I realize, was the foundation of my pre-reunion angst. How to sincerely engage with humans you haven't seen in years yet feel the need to manifest some kind of kinship, a bond of shared experience, however distant. It requires a bit of energy, empathy, and compassion, or just booze. To my surprise, the event was not as traumatizing as I'd feared. My junior high school squad was in full force representing the East Side. All three of Enid's middle schools are, ironically, named after poets. Longfellow was considered the thug school with a diverse mix of profound poverty, lower working class families, and university professors. Emerson offered Hindu texts as his own, and Waller escaped the death penalty by bribing the party he wanted to overthrow. At least Longfellow wrote poems against the enslavement of Africans. It was in junior high that words became my passion and my future. Reading the poetry of Miss Gwendolyn Brooks, whom I'd have the privilege to be mentored by in the 90s, and Beowulf, while falling in love with this new poetry called Rap, was transformative beyond definition. 
Here they all were, my Longfellow crew, including the brother who learned the drums as I learned the tenor sax while playing the Parliament Funkadelic records in third grade, reassembled with almost the same faces, but not the same hairlines. He's a successful session drummer in L.A. It was great to see all of them, but especially James, my Korean-American best friend in those years and beyond. He got us expelled our junior year. That the smartest dude in school was responsible for the only mark on my record is in itself laughable. Who does marching band practice in three-piece suits anyway? There was a rather bubbly white woman who moved in to get a closer look at my name tag. When she decided not to try to pronounce my name, I said, call me Q. She said, yes, Q, 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 that's, that's what we called you. Didn't you get into a lot of trouble, Q? I was 32 when I changed my name. It was good to spend time with the rich white dudes, all Walder grads, who are likely wealthier than their parents. The one I beat for student council vice president is a friend, though he still can't completely understand how I won, even after 40 years. Politics were avoided as a topic of conversation, and during the moments chatter leaned in that direction, usually a white dude said something like, don't go there. I laughed, then walked away. I'm certain a part of my apprehension was the certainty that my political ideals aligned with a small number of people in the room. I ended the night with the crew at the home of high school sweethearts now long married. They've been part of my family for over four decades. I am grateful for good friends, for long handholds, for the uncommon bond. I guess that's why I went in the first place. Though it had been some years, I actually had a good day in Enid. Perhaps my cousin was on to something. I will likely not be back for my 45th, but these calming words from Longfellow might change my mind. Come, read to me some poem, some simple and heartfelt lay that shall soothe this restless feeling and banish the thoughts of day. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Quraysh Ali Lansana in Enid. The holidays are always a special time of year when families come together to celebrate. But when grandma slipped the special brownies and decides to share the gift that keeps on giving, well, that's when true memories are made. Here's Sandra Slade. The holiday season is such a wonderful time to be filled with the giving spirit. But sometimes my family is filled with different spirits that make giving take on a totally different meaning. Now, our Christmas gatherings are always held in my great-grandmother's house, being she's the matriarch of the family. At the ripe young age of 92, we cherish each and every holiday we get to spend with her, especially last year. It all started out like a normal Christmas afternoon. The young kids out running around, outside playing with their new toys. All my uncles gathered around the television, arguing on who has the best football team. And all the women of the family in the kitchen, putting the finishing touches on Christmas dinner. Just so much love being given throughout all. Until, unbeknownst to anyone else, one of the younger cousins decided to give great-grandmother some special brownies. We were soon to find out something wasn't quite right with Grandma, as she was set to say grace over dinner, like she always would do. But this one didn't go quite as expected. We all gathered in the dining room and joined hands as great-grandmother began to pray. Our Father, who has blessed us to join together once again, all of my children, who majority of, owes me money, but think I have Alzheimer's and I've forgotten about it? All my great-nieces and great-nephews who've once again come to this yearly gathering with nothing in their hands but have drink all my liquor and think I didn't notice. Father, bless their broke pockets before I leave them all with broke behinds. Especially Tony. If he doesn't put my silver back under my bed where I keep it because if he doesn't, I got six silver bullets in my apron with his name on them. I know he's on that stuff, but I'm about to be his rehab. Plus... Bless Lisa, who thinks the lies she's been telling us every year about her best friend she brings with her every year, when we all know, good and well, her tank has been filled with sugar since she was a child. Father, bless my great-granddaughter, Shelly, and her husband, John, and please heal his eyes, because after all the years they've been together, he 
still can't see that these children don't belong to him. Bless my granddaughter, who says she's paid for this entire meal this year when I know she bought them stamps from her neighbor that's on that stuff. And most of all, bless them little hoodlin' youngsters that are outside right now smoking them funny cigarettes and gambling on my front porch. And bless the little half-Mexican one that gave me brownies earlier because I'm going to need some more before Deacon Brown comes over later and spends an hour telling me how he would have done what when he was 50 years younger. Amen. Immediately, after she was done speaking, great-grandma passed smooth out, top row of teeth hanging out of her mouth, snoring. The entire family stood there in silence. It was as if you could hear a fly tap dancing on cotton. It was so quiet. The peaceful awkwardness finally broke when John yelled out, I tell you what, somebody owes me some cookie money since they spent all that time in my cookie jar. I guess Shelly stays in them good giving moods all year long. The arguments began in every direction. Food flying, swear words filled the air. Somebody snatched great-grandma's wig off, and there I was crawling across the floor, trying to escape safely. After making my way outside, I yelled out, You know y'all wrong for giving grandma those brownies. Then after I got my stuff and got to my car, somebody done stole the change out of my cup in the car and left a note saying, I got you back next time. Needless to say, I love my family. And I love the giving spirit. But ever since then, I have found my true gift of giving is giving the entire family their space and staying my butt at home for the holidays. Focus Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership with KOSU Radio, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Additional support is provided by the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, and the Zero Families Foundation. Our theme music is by Moffitt Music. Focus Black Oklahoma's executive producers are Karesh Ali Lantana and Bracken Clark. Our associate producers are Smriti Iyengar and Jesse Ulrich. Visit us online at kosu.org, tricitycollective.com slash focusblackoklahoma, and YouTube at Tricity Collective. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at focusblackok. You can hear Focus Black Oklahoma on demand for free at kosu.org, NPR One, npr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Low Income Household Water Assistance Program uses federal pandemic relief money to help people who have lost or are in danger of losing access to drinking water and wastewater utilities. Each state or tribe is responsible for determining eligibility and distributing assistance. Oklahoma and 22 tribal nations have almost $26 million to distribute this year. To apply for the state program, go to okdhslive.org and provide information about your household, including property, income, and expenses. Eligibility is based on income, and assistance is first come, first served. But OKDHS says they'll prioritize households with people who are elderly, disabled, or younger than five. In Oklahoma City, I'm Grayson Wheeler.